Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we have heard from the Apostle Paul just what it is that's on the line here in a message like this and on a Sunday like this as we come to the Lord's table. So how I pray that you would give us listening ears. Um, Let us hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches and to this church through uh, Luke chapter 22. I thank you that you have not left us alone in a moment like this. This Holy Spirit is, is your moment, and so how we ask that you would uh, break the bread of life this morning before we come to the table. Help us to feed on you, Lord Jesus, in our hearts by faith as we look at this text. Grant us to see what's, what's really here in our Bibles and go home, uh, leave this place with a, a sense that we have a, a, a more profound and practical and I trust helpful um, application of what it means to be a people who observes the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Um, We thank you for the gospel made visible in the bread and in the cup. Come now and enable us as um, as we dive into this text. We ask you, Lord Jesus, to stand forth from it in your great name. Amen. I invite you to open a Bible to the gospel according to Luke this morning, chapter 22, beginning in verse 7. If you'd like to use one of the red Bibles from underneath the seat in front of you, this morning's text can be found on page 881 in the Red Bibles. 881 in the Red Bibles. Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, beginning in verse 7. When it comes to the Lord's Supper, uh, sometimes the pages of the New Testament give rise to as many questions as they provide answers. Um, for example, when you, we look at Luke 22, verses 19 and 20, Jesus says of the bread and the cup, he says, this is my body, and this is the new covenant in my blood. And so for millennia, faithful Christians have affirmed this, and yet some of us have wondered how exactly is this the body and blood of our Lord? In what way is Christ present in the supper? Furthermore, we are warned, as we just heard in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, 29, that anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. And we revere the words of Holy Scripture, of course, in this church. We believe that the Bible is God speaking, and so we want to ask, what does it mean to discern the body? What does that even mean? How do, you, how do you do that? This is of shattering importance, of course, because in the very next verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Bible goes on to say in verse 29, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. Have you ever meditated on that verse before? Annie Dillard has. Uh, In her brilliant 1982 book entitled Teaching a Stone to Talk, Annie Dillard writes, Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we blithely invoke on a Sunday morning? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. 
Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares, and they should lash us to our pews. She's not wrong. You know, we commonly refer to the Lord's Supper as a means of grace, but in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, Paul tells us, at least in first century Corinth, it was for some their means of death. So what is the Lord's Supper? How do we observe it? Who should take part in it? Where does it come from? What does it point to? These and perhaps many other questions are ones that would come streaming to mind as we encounter passages like the one in front of us. In the text before us this morning, we have the famous account of Jesus and his disciples at what we call the Last Supper. But the Last Supper also sets the pattern for what came to be called the Lord's Supper, the meal that we observe in this church the first Sunday of every month, and during the season of Lent, we observe it every Sunday going up to Easter, and that that season is almost upon us. Now, in the Lord's kind providence, as we approach Luke 22, verse 7, we find ourselves doing so, guess when? On the first Sunday of the month. This wasn't planned, but I think it's a gift of the Lord. So it's rare that we have an immediate opportunity like this to apply what we're learning in a preaching passage, but so we have that today. I'd like to begin with the the big idea this morning and just unfold the sermon text in two steps, and then we're going to transition to our observance of the Lord's table, and so we apply this sermon. Let's begin with the big idea today. Here it is. The Lord's Supper is a visible and tangible expression of the gospel. So let's make every effort to celebrate it well. The Lord's Supper is a visible and tangible expression of the gospel. So let's make every effort to celebrate it well. If those descriptors visible and tangible sound familiar to you, I hope they do because I'm drawing them right from the Free Church Statement of Faith, uh, the movement that we're a part of and the creed that we affirm. The Lord's Supper is a visible and tangible expression of the gospel, so let's make every effort to celebrate it well. As we look at our passage this morning, let's consider two applications from the Last Supper for the Lord's Supper. Two applications from the Last Supper for the Lord's Supper. Here's application number one. Let's be careful about our preparation for the table. Let's be careful about our preparation for the table. Do you follow along with me now and I'll read chapter 22, verses 7 to 13. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us to prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. It doesn't take a world-class theologian to discern that these verses are about preparation. That is obvious to you as it is to me. Um, All we need to do is make note of how many times the word prepare appears here. Uh, To my tally, we see it four times 
in seven verses. In verse 8, Jesus says to Peter and John, prepare the Passover for us. Likewise, in verse 9, Peter and John respond to Jesus, where would you have us to prepare it? Once he's given them the relevant details, Jesus says to them, prepare it there. And then finally we read in verse 13 that Peter and John indeed obeyed Jesus and prepared the Passover. This passage is about preparation. It's about getting ready, about making ready. Which brings me to this preliminary question for application. When the Lord's Supper is served in this church, are you getting ready? Are you ready today? Are those who are serving it ready? Are those who prepare it prepared themselves? New Testament scholar Daryl Bach observes that He's of the opinion that we're not as prepared as we like to think we are. He wrote this. He said, It is perhaps a great tragedy in the church that this meal often goes relegated to a minor role in the church's worship. Many observances of the Lord's table are relegated to a quick addition after the service, observed once a quarter or less. This supper was never designed to be a tacked-on element of worship. I agree, and I suspect that you do too. So what, is it, what would it actually look like to be careful in our preparation for this meal? I think it might be wise just to consider the example of both our Lord Jesus and two of his closest disciples here in this text. Luke informs us in verse 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. If you recall from verse 1 of our text last week of this chapter, the At that point in the first century Jewish history, the the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover were regarded really as one celebration. This was one week-long feast. For the better part of 1,500 years, the people of Israel observed the command of the Lord himself as they reflected on their rescue from their slavery in Egypt. The term Passover couldn't be more fitting. When the tenth and final plague fell upon the land of Egypt and the angel of the Lord's presence promised death to the firstborn of every household in the land, yet God's people would be spared if each household took an unblemished lamb and sacrificed it and smeared some of the blood across the doorposts and the lintel of every doorway to every household. And the Lord says to his people in Exodus twelve thirteen, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So there's, there's the namesake for the Passover feast. Uh, when the Israelite families who were a part of this meal observed it and slaughtered the lamb and smeared the blood over the doorposts, They were literally passed over by the angel of death. And he was looking for one thing, blood. Not sincerity, not morality, not best intentions, blood. And when the Lord saw the blood of the lamb, he would pass over preserving and protecting those dwelling in the home. And it May, may it not be lost on us, any of us at this point, that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, the Apostle Paul declares to us that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been 
sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Now, in the context before us, Peter and John have their work cut out for them. Uh, Jesus tells them in verse 8 to prepare the Passover for him and the 12 disciples. But this is going to involve a number of things. Securing, first of all, the, the lamb and then having it slaughtered in the temple courts during twilight, which only occurred between 3.30 and 5.30 in the afternoon on Passover. And then they were to leave the temple court and also find a room, getting bitter herbs for the meal, buying unleavened bread, purchasing wine. This is a fair amount of work for two guys. And when they ask where they ought to prepare everything, Jesus, doesn't he give them remarkable specifics about where it's all to go down? Uh, Who they'll encounter, what the room was going to look like, where they'll be? It may be that Jesus is looking into the future here. It's also possible that this isn't a prophecy, it's just an evidence of Jesus' preparation. Maybe he went ahead and got this taken care of before he asked them to go find the room. Either way, the point is that Jesus is in charge. One New Testament commentator put it, Christ controls these events, whether by foreknowledge or by prearrangement. Jesus is in the driver's seat. Which, I think, leads me to ask the question for all of us this morning, in this place, when we observe the Lord's Supper, is Jesus in the driver's seat? You know what I mean? Is Christ who is the chief shepherd of our church, the senior pastor, in the driver's seat of this meal when we observe it. If the Lord's Supper is a visible and tangible expression of the gospel, then we want to be making every effort to celebrate it well. What does the Lord's Supper look like when when Jesus is presiding over it? Well, I think that it looks like, first of all, that we're especially careful about our preparation for the table. One thing this might entail is having just a shared, agreed-upon definition of what the Lord's Supper is in the first place. I mean, if you were to assign and specify particular words in one sentence to define the Lord's Supper, how would you do it? Now, if you, like me, might need some help, here's the definition I came across from Bobby Jameson, who's one of the pastors at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., Um, He wrote a fantastic little book called Understanding the Lord's Supper, and in it, Jameson writes, The Lord's Supper is a church's act of communing with Christ and each other and of commemorating Christ's death by partaking of bread and wine and a believer's act of receiving Christ's benefits and renewing his or her commitment to Christ and his people thereby making the church one body and marking it off from the world, period. That's what you were going to say, right? What a great definition. I'll read it to you again just so you want to, in case you want to get it down. The Lord's Supper is a church's act of communing with Christ and each other and of commemorating Christ's death by partaking of bread and wine and a believer's act of receiving Christ's benefits and renewing his or her commitment to Christ and his people, thereby making the church one body and marking it off from the world. There's a lot happening in the Lord's Supper. This is not snack time, right? This meal is a massive statement at the heart of what it means to be a Christian in the world and to be the church in the world. Now, as for when and how we prepare this meal, just a few words, and then we'll move on to the last point today. When do we prepare for the Lord's Supper? Well, I'll tell you this much. We don't do it the morning of, okay? 
We take this meal roughly 18 times a year. That would be in addition to putting all of our observances together. Give or take 18 times a year. These days are public knowledge, and they are noted in our calendars and on our website and in our bulletin. We do our best to, even a week ahead of time, let people know that it's happening and remind one another. So when do we start preparing for the Lord's Supper? Well, in one sense, as soon as we finish taking it, we start preparing once again. In terms of how do we prepare well for it, my baselines have always been vertical and horizontal here. Vertically, we want to be people who are coming to this meal living in a fresh, vital surrender to Christ. We want to come to the table, in other words, repentant and forgiven. And I don't know about you, but I've discovered that I don't repent well on the run. In fact, that's what Guy was teaching this morning. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup, he's, he's for sure thinking about the sin in our lives. And the way that I say it is that we want to be Christ followers, and this may sound radical, but just let it be radical, I guess. We want to be Christ followers turning from all known sin. And notice, I didn't say, nor do I mean sinless perfection. That's not provided for. It's not in the cards for us in this lifetime. Uh, from, from womb to tomb, we have sin in our lives, period. We are sinful people. But it's not the presence of sin in a Christian's life that's the biggest issue. It's the absence of repentance. So let's be a people turning from all known sin to the degree that we are aware of it, turning from it. Holding close nothing that's forbidden when we come to the table. That way the gospel is working itself out vertically between each one of us and the Lord. Now, in terms of how this looks horizontally, I like to turn here to Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24, where Jesus instructs his disciples, So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. You hear him? We ought to be living lives where we are actively pursuing one another in peacemaking capacities as a way of life, living living out the nitty-gritty particulars of the gospel in all of our relationships. But even in the case when at the last second you realize, right in the context of corporate worship, that you and your brother still have some unfinished business to attend to, then stop what you're doing. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Go be reconciled with your brother and then come to the gathering. Make it right with your brother. Some of you know this story, uh, but a number of years ago I found myself locked in a pretty active conflict with one of our elders. He's no longer a part of this church. And the Lord's Supper was coming. He knew it. I knew it. The Lord's Supper is always coming. And we had tried to some degree to get together and to work it out, but we weren't there yet. In all honesty, we were not ready to take the Lord's Supper as brothers reconciled to one another. So here I am presiding over the Lord's Supper. He's clear in the back of the sanctuary. And 
as the elements come around, neither of us took the elements. And the whole church saw it when I didn't take the bread and drink the cup. And you know what? It was right. It was so right. Now, it was wrong in the sense that we just should have gotten to the bottom of that thing. Two grown men could take care of this before the Lord's Supper, two elders. But we hadn't, so we did the next best thing, and that was we let the elements pass us by. It's the only time in 14 years as a part of this church where that's ever happened to me. Well, we got together immediately afterwards that day, and I asked him, I said, what did you think of that? He said, I hated it. I said, me too. Let's figure this thing out. And we experienced a very sweet reconciliation that afternoon. And although he goes to another church, we have a wonderful relationship these days and delight to see each other, and it's water under the bridge. I tell you that story just to be clear that we all play by the same rules. You don't get a hall pass because you're in the leadership of this church. In fact, you especially don't get a hall pass if you're in the leadership of this church. And why? Because the Lord's Supper is a visible and tangible expression of the gospel. We should make every effort to celebrate it well. So the first application from the Lord's Supper, number one, let's be careful about our preparation, just coming to the table before we ever get there. Second application today, let's be intentional about our participation at the table. Let's be intentional about our participation at the table. Take a look with me now in the time that remains. We'll look at Luke twenty-two fourteen to 23, starting in Luke twenty-two fourteen. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which I is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed." And they began to question one another, saying, which of them it could be that would do this? Now, Luke's packed an extraordinary amount in here. So let's just, let's survey the scene and see if we can come up with a a handful of observations and and bring them by way home of application. Uh, The first thing to notice maybe is in verse 14, just their posture. Uh, this, This is easy to pass by and some translations obscure it, but I'm grateful for the more literal ones that don't. Uh, the ESV says, when, when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And we've discussed what it means to recline at table before in this church. Uh, that is the, the physical posture of it, what it looked like, the leaning on the elbow toward the table with the legs kind of jetting out from behind you, the actual posture. But what I'd like to make note here is one thing that this posture assumes Uh, Throughout Luke's gospel, in the words of one author, reclining reflects the posture of free people. 
Now that's really important. Because this meal, when it was first observed centuries ago on the night of the death of the firstborn of the Passover in Egypt, this was not the posture that they were to assume. Exodus 12, 11, the Lord's instructions are very specific. Perhaps you remember this. He says, in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. See the difference? When they were slaves, they ate this meal with their track shoes on, with their feet in the starting blocks, waiting for the gun to leave Egypt. But here in the upper room with their Savior, it's different. Even on the night of his betrayal, it's different. This meal is in the midst of changing from Passover to Last Supper to Lord's Supper. And at this supper, the disciples reclined at table with their master as free men. Over and over again in Luke's gospel, reclining at table is what free people do. Just one example here will suffice. In Jesus' teaching on the unworthy servants, remember how he sets that one up in, in Luke 17, 11, 17, 7? He says in Luke 17, 7, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? The implied answer to the rhetorical question is, Don't be ridiculous. Slaves don't recline at table with their masters. Are you insane? But what's happening at the supper? When the hour came, he reclined at table and his apostles with him. And why? Because they're free. John 8, 36, so if the Son sets you free, you will be what? Free indeed. And they're not just free, according to Jesus in John 13, 14 to 15, they're his friends. We come to this meal as the friends of Jesus. So are you free today? Are you free to celebrate the Lord's Supper? The Bible says in Galatians 5, for freedom Christ has set us free. You were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. 1 Peter 2.16 summons us to live as people who are free. And in Revelation 1.5, it shows us how that can be. The Apostle John speaks of Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And there it is. There's the key. Is the blood of Jesus, if you like, covering the doorpost of your life? Are you sure? How sure? Don't come to this meal a slave. Turn from your sin, your sin that Jesus died to free you from. Abandon all hope of reconciliation with God apart from the cross of Jesus Christ and faith in his blood and fresh repentance, even as a believer, laying everything down again. He paid it all so that you could be free. Be free today. 
Second observation. We could look at any number of observations in this text, but, I mean, you know, Jesus says, this is my body. This is the new covenant in my, in my blood. We could stop there, but we won't. <laughs> we could talk about the fact that Jesus won't participate in this meal again until he does so in the future kingdom. Does that imply sacrifices here on earth once again? The temple system up and running? That's an interesting question, but we won't stop there. In the middle section, what I'd like for us to consider is what Jesus says to his disciples on the front end of the meal in verse 15. Twenty-two, fifteen. Jesus says to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And it's the first part of that statement that snagged my attention this past week. I have earnestly desired to eat this meal with you. It's a fascinating way of talking when you look at the original language. You could translate it, I have deeply desired to eat this Passover, but that wouldn't quite get the the literalness of this. You look at it word for word, Jesus actually said something here. This is a Hebraism. It's a way of saying something in the Jewish culture. The King James Version picks it up nicely. Jesus literally says in verse 15, with desire I have desired to eat this meal with you. That's what he said. Isn't that magnificent? With desire, I have desired this meal. With craving, with longing, with desire, I've desired it. And the question before the house today is, is this you? Is this me? Do I now or have I ever earnestly desired to participate in this meal? With desire to desire to eat and drink the Lord's Supper. If you're not there and you want to be, How might you begin to cultivate this sort of desire? Well, Jesus hints at it, I think, in verses 16 and 18, which we should take a look at now. Because Jesus not only looks at this meal, but he looks through this meal, doesn't he? All the way through to eating and drinking it anew in the kingdom. You ever waited at a restaurant table for your meal, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're trying to be a good Christian and waiting and waiting. And the longer you wait, the hungrier you get. I mean, at this point, you're, you're, you're rummaging around for Tic Tacs, right, for gum, anything to take the edge off. And just then your server stops by and says, would you like some bread for the table? And you go, yes, 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 that would be helpful. Please, bread, whatever you got, anything, just bring it. Popovers, whatever you got. When the bread comes... Sure, it ain't exactly what you ordered, but oh, it tastes awfully good, doesn't it? It tastes awfully good, not because that's the sum total of your meal, but because the main course is still on its way. You know it's coming. In Evangelical Convictions, which is the official exposition of our free church statement of faith, it says this, One of the biblical pictures of the glorious future is of that great banquet, A messianic wedding feast at which the church, as the bride of Christ, is received by her husband. A small morsel of bread and a sip of wine or grape juice is no feast, but it is to be a token of one, a taste, a glimpse, a pointer to our great hope. Even today, when Jews celebrate the Passover, they end the meal by looking forward, saying, next year in Jerusalem, signifying their hope in the coming of the Messiah. Which is ironic because he already came. When Christians celebrate the Lord's Supper, we look back to Jerusalem and Jesus' death and resurrection there, but we also look forward to what is yet to come, saying, next year 
in the glorious kingdom of God. For when we eat and drink, our souls are nourished in faith as we anticipate that glorious future when our faith will become sight. Amen. If you, if you long for more and more for that day, uh, the more earnestly you will desire to eat this meal. This meal, we've said it before, think of it as an hors d'oeuvre for the wedding supper of the Lamb that's to come. Desiring with desire this meal in which we're about to partake all the more as we see the day drawing near. So it's another way we can be intentional about our participation. Lastly, look with me for a moment at the final three verses in our text, uh, 21 to 23. Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be that was going to do this. What do we learn here? Well, we learned something important about what we sometimes call fencing the table. I don't know if that's familiar language to you, but it probably deserves to be. Fencing the table. Fencing the table is the term we use to describe who ought to take part in this meal and who ought not to take part in this meal. We invite all believers to this meal, but believers only. And then a certain type of believer at that, believers who are living out the implications of the gospel in their lives, at peace with God and at peace with one another. But what about when someone approaches the table who's not a believer? Or let's be concrete. I mean, let's just push it a little bit here. Let's say you're serving the Lord's Supper and it gets really awkward. You're you're passing out the bread and you're weaving through the aisles and you know the person who's about to take the meal is, is unrepentant. They're not a Christian or they're a believer that has some serious turning from sin to do. What's our responsibility toward them at that point? What does fencing the table look like? Well, you may be familiar with how John Calvin responded with this issue when he was faced with it in his church in Geneva, Switzerland. Maybe you don't know this, but there were unconverted folks that were advancing toward the communion table. They were called libertines in his day. He was confident that they did not have a grasp on the gospel. He knows what Paul says about eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. So you know what he did? He literally threw his body over the elements as if to say, over my dead body. You are not going to eat and drink judgment upon yourself. Now, I don't know what you think of that. What John Calvin did in that moment. I've always admired Calvin's courage. I think as a well-meaning act of love toward those in his sphere of influence. Nevertheless, is that what Jesus did at the table? They're about to eat of the bread and drink of the cup in the upper room. Who's about to do that? Well, the disciples, all of whom are about to abandon him in his hour of need. Peter, who is hours away from denying his Lord outside the meeting of the Jewish leaders. And Judas himself. Judas, who's going to betray him. So while I think we're wise to fence the table in the way that 
Jesus and Paul have modeled for us. I'm convinced these days that Calvin crossed a line. When a pastor seeks to wisely defense the table for the, for the church, his is a declarative authority, not a coercive authority, which means that the onus ultimately falls back upon each one of us as we approach this meal, appropriately so. And so Paul says to each one of us that in this place, we ought to hear and take heart, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. Let each person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Well, let's do that as a church. So the Lord's Supper is a visible and tangible expression of the gospel. So let's make every effort to celebrate it well. Two applications from the Last Supper for the Lord's Supper. Number one, let's be careful. Let's be careful about our preparation for the table. And number two, let's be intentional about our participation at the table. Now, in the conclusion to his book entitled The Church, The Gospel Made Visible, uh, Pastor Mark Dever responds to the question, what significance does getting all this right have in the final analysis? Like, why sweat over this? Why is this such a big deal? Why a whole sermon on this? Well, Dever's answer is one for the ages. He says this, ultimately, getting this right touches on God's glory itself. The church is not only an institution founded by Christ, it is also his body. In it is reflected God's own glory. How will theology, the Bible, even God himself be known apart from the church? What community will understand and explain God's creation and providence to the world? How will the ravages of sin be explained, the person and work of Christ extolled, the Spirit's saving work seen, and the return of Christ proclaimed to the coming generation, if not by the church, observing these means of grace? The doctrine of the church is important because it is tied to the good news itself. The church is to be the appearance of the gospel. It's what the gospel looks like when it's played out in people's lives. Take this away, and you take away the visible manifestation of the gospel in the world. So not to put too much pressure on us, but this is the visible manifestation of the gospel in these next few moments. The Lord's Supper is a visible and tangible expression of the gospel, so let us make every effort to celebrate it well. And at this time, it is our privilege to do just that. I'd like to pray for us.